Well, there are, there are many things I love about my, my wife. Uh, one thing is she has great taste in music, not to mention men, uh, but uh, no, just kidding. Um, but she has great taste in music, and uh, Megan and I love finding obscure artists, and we, we're, we're those people that like find bands, and then once other people start hearing about them, we kind of get annoyed and try to find other artists. Like, we're those people. But, but one of our favorite artists uh, is a gentleman by the name of Sufjan Stevens. And Sufjan is one of our great favorite artists. Uh, we kind of fell in love with his music when we were dating in college. Uh, we actually played one of his songs at our wedding. Uh, his Christmas album is constantly on repeat in our home the day after Thanksgiving, and all four of our children's middle names is Sufjan. Th- that one's a joke. That one's a joke. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Some of you are like, oh my dear Lord. Uh, but now I'm regretting it, actually. We should have. We should have done that. But, but we love Sufjan. He's great. And so a few years ago, we had the joy of seeing him live in concert. We had been waiting to see him, first time seeing him live. But it was so strange. Something had happened. By the time we had gotten into Sufjan's music, to the time we saw him live, he had totally changed his entire, like, ethos, personality, aesthetic. Like he he went from this kind of acoustic, very like orchestral schoolboy charm, if you will, to this like electronic, annoyed, like kind of like jerkwad persona uh, that was so different. I mean, seriously, these are the contrasts. Like he had exchanged his, his string section for dancers on stage. He had exchanged his banjo for a synthesizer, and and his kind of simplistic thrift store wardrobe, he exchanged for these tank tops that showed off his newly chiseled biceps. It was just like, we're like, what on earth are we seeing here? There was this massive disparity between the Sufjan of our college years and whatever it was that we saw performing on stage. It was so strange. We left this concert of one of our favorite artists realizing like that was a terrible experience. Something had happened, something had shifted in his personality and ethos to where he was almost unrecognizable at this point. And then I share this, not just to say the word Sufjan, it's fun to say, but, but to illustrate that this is in some ways a phenomenon that is at play within the church of Jesus Christ today. That there is a sense in which the church of Jesus Christ is, is at risk of, and at times guilty of, a shifting, a gradual drift away from the origin, the source of who we've been called to be as a people centered around Jesus. And and while we can ask this question kind of from a 30,000 foot view of of the church at large, like, you know, the church out there, I, I wanna ask this question of us. As a local church body, as this family, have we found ourselves gradually drifting away from what Jesus has established in the Gospels of what it means to be a people gathered together and scattered out throughout our city who are centered on Jesus and his kingdom. Now, if you're new to Christ Community, if, you've been, uh, if you're joining us for the first time or this is your second or third time, we're glad you're here. Uh, we've been going through this sermon series that we're calling Rediscovering Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. And what we're looking at is kind of looking at all the ways in which we've kind of created these caricatures of Jesus, and we're bringing them, we're, we're trying to say, what does it mean to submit to who Jesus is as revealed to us in the Gospels? And this morning what we're gonna do, we're actually gonna start a a, a series within a series, it's like Inception, uh, a a little mini-series entitled A Jesus Community. This is the first part of a three-week mini-series on what it means to be a Jesus community. And, And the first thing I want us to look at as we turn to our text in Luke 6, in the calling of the disciples and the beginning of the Sermon on the Plain that Luke records for us, I want us to first see this, that a community centered on Jesus keeps first things first 
keeps first things first. And I'll explain what I mean by this. And I'm going to do that by, by giving you a little, little bit of an insight into my life. Um, just full disclosure, when I read the Bible, I t- when I come to sections where there's like a genealogy and a list of names and, and like he begat him who begat her and she's dead and all this stuff, I tend to skip those portions of the Bible. I, can I, is, that, is that a fireable offense for a pastor? I'm not sure. But I, I tend to skip over those like this is not really that helpful and I move on. And, and it, admittedly so, in preparation for this sermon, I kind of looked at the list of the disciples. Yeah, I know the disciples. Let's move on to the, more, the meatier stuff. But as I, as I leaned into this text, I realized there's something beautiful about what it means to be a people centered on Jesus in the calling of the disciples that I hadn't really seen before. And it's particularly centered around the first and last disciple mentioned in verse 15, Matthew and Simon. Now Matthew, if you're, if you're familiar with kind of the disciples, Matthew was a tax collector. Tax collectors were very much hated by the common folk of the day because they were employed by the state. They padded their pockets by overtaxing people, and so they were not liked by the common folk. But on the other end of the spectrum, you have Simon, who is referred to as a zealot. And a zealot was not just like, he was not just like a passionate person. Like, a zealot was a formal term to describe someone who is a political and social activist. Sometimes zealots were known as insurrectionists who spoke out and acted out against the Roman government, the very government that Matthew was employed by. And Jesus has called these two men together to journey with him, to be his disciples, and to begin this movement that is known as the Church of Jesus Christ that would transform everything. Jesus chose, you could say, kind of a a left-wing, kind of big government person in Matthew, this tax collector, and he chose this kind of right-wing, small government protester in Simon, and has called them to be together. That's like going on a road trip and inviting Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi to be your buddies. And and that's what what Jesus is doing here, which like, you're looking at this, like, how on earth is this even possible? I mean, I, I, I love to kind of imagine that when Jesus kind of paired his disciples up together for, you know, get your travel buddy, I'm sure he put Matthew and Simon together. Uh, when they broke up into prayer partners, I'm sure he put Matthew and Simon together, who didn't naturally see the world in the same way. But, but seriously, we have to ask the question, how on earth did this movement not just die at its conception with these two very different perspectives being put together? If, if, if the political climate in Jesus' day was anything like ours today, you would think that this movement was dead on arrival with Simon and Matthew being brought together in this same community. But here's the thing. The, 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 the group of disciples were not ripped apart. They, they, they did not die instantly because there is something distinct about the people of Jesus centered upon him and his kingdom that is distinct from our culture. This is where the community of Jesus is distinct from our world. That our identity, that our allegiances, that that who we give our attention and focus to is Jesus above everything else. Matthew and Simon were able to be in community together and on mission together, despite the fact that they had very different political views and ways of viewing the world. And the reason they were able to do that is because their primary political allegiance was to Jesus and his kingdom. Scott Sauls, in his book, Jesus Outside the Lines, I've mentioned this book before, I, I would commend it to you, especially as we're just, when we're in an election year, we need, as the people of Jesus, to know how to navigate these waters wisely, graciously, and thoughtfully. 
But Scott Saul says this, he says, our loyalty to Jesus and his kingdom must always exceed our loyalty to an earthly agenda, whether political or otherwise. We should feel at home with people who share our faith, but not our politics, even more than we do with people who share our politics, but not our faith. Wherever the reign of Jesus is felt, differences are embraced and even celebrated as believers move toward one another in unity and peace. Are we that kind of community? As, as a local church family here, the Olathe Campus of Christ community, are we the kind of people who are so centered on Jesus that we can break bread with, be on mission with, call people family who vote on the other side of the aisle, who live on the other side of town, who maybe came to our country from the other side of the border and whose skin tone is on the other side of the spectrum, so to speak? Are we centered on Jesus in such a way where we can call one another family? I love what even Dana said in the beginning of our greeting. We gather in this place because we believe all people can find a home in this community through Jesus Christ. But is this what describes us as a people? I believe we can do this when we keep first things first, when our love to, devotion with, and our life with Jesus is paramount above everything else about us. When he is first and foremost, everything else is ordered rightly. And so the church, my, my question for us is this, is, can this be said of us? When we understand what it means to follow Jesus, does this describe how we order our allegiances and our loves? Are we known first and foremost for our commitment to, devotion to, and love for Jesus before we are known for any kind of cultural, political, ethnic, or economic ideology? It's not bad to have views and opinions and convictions in these categories, but how are they ordered in our lives? A community centered on Jesus keeps first things first, so much so that Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot can be called brothers in the same community. But the second thing we see as we continue on, as we move from the calling of the disciples to what is referred to as the, the Sermon on the Plain in Luke's Gospel, we see that a community centered on Jesus also sees the world upside down. Sees the world upside down. Now, we come to this portion of Luke's Gospel. You, you might be familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. If you've been around church, or even if this is your first time in church, you've probably heard of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous sermon recorded in Matthew's Gospel, chapters 5, 6, and 7. But Luke's account of that sermon is referred to as the Sermon on the Plain, and it's widely held that these are two different sermons. Uh, it was probably that Jesus had almost somewhat of a stump speech, if you will. He probably gave this message or a version of it in various times and settings. But the Sermon on the Plain recorded in Luke's gospel has a lot of similarities with Matthew's account of the Sermon on the Mount, but with some variations. But both sermons begin with some aspect of the Beatitudes, a description of what life is to look like within God's kingdom. And we see that in verse 20. Look with me at verse 20. And it says, And he, referring to Jesus, lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now what Jesus is saying here, he's declaring to us the values of his kingdom. As he goes on and, and builds out these beatitudes, he's showing to us what it means, what are the values of his kingdom. What are the postures that make somebody primed and ready to receive and enter into the kingdom of Jesus? And what Jesus does for us here is he is specifically highlighting those of lowly estate, 
the humble, the broken, the vulnerable, the marginalized, the oppressed, those who understand their, uh, the, the situation that they are in. These are those whom God has drawn near to and whom the kingdom has drawn near to as well. And, and this is a consistent theme throughout Luke's gospel. When you look at the emphasis of those who are broken and contrite or the ones who Jesus has come to draw near to, that it's not the healthy that need a physician, it is the sick. In fact, the first uh, reference of this theme of the lowly being brought up and being close to the kingdom of God is actually referenced by Jesus' own mother, Mary, in her song, The Magnificat, in Luke chapter one. If you wanna skip back a bit in Luke one, look with me at verses uh, 50, 52 and 53. So this is after Mary has received this news that she will bear the, the son of God, the Messiah, and she sings these words. He has brought down, referring to God, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Now you could say that Jesus in this moment, as he's preaching this sermon on the plain, he's sounding very much like his mother. He's reflecting the, the heart of his mother who, I, and I've just got to wonder that like, did Mary sing this song to Jesus as he grew up? as he grew in stature and wisdom and favor with men? Did Mary sing this song to Jesus in such a way that this truth was codified in his heart to the point that it just naturally overflowed in, in his message from the plain in this moment? Regardless, what we see is that Jesus is telling us something about what it means to be near to God and the values of his kingdom. But to be clear, Jesus is not saying something about a particular socioeconomic status as being more righteous than others. Jesus is not saying that the poor are inherently more righteous and that the rich are inherently more sinful. Being poor doesn't get you into heaven just as being rich doesn't get you into hell instantly. But rather the blessing of the poor, the hungry, the sorrowful, the downtrodden, their blessedness comes from the fact that they are predisposed to being more dependent upon God for their provision. They recognize the severity of their situation. Their material poverty and brokenness awakens them to the reality of their deep brokenness and when it comes to our own sin and devastation of the fall. Now, there, there's much that can be learned from this narrative, but I want to make sure that we understand that we, we see the value and the importance of learning from those who we tend to see as beneath us. And whether we deem them as beneath us because of a socioeconomic status and label, because of ethnicity, because of language, whatever it may be, because of age or gender or political persuasion, those that we deem beneath us are those that I believe we have a great deal to learn from. And there's, and there's much to be learned. In fact, I, I had the joy of learning from um, Dr. Gracie uh, Jisoon Kim. Uh, she spoke at a conference last year about the church being the hope of all peoples. And, and she pens these words for us in talking about this very phenomenon. She says, the marginalized and downtrodden receive special insights. They are the ones who can see the pain and injustice that are killing the world, and it is to these voices that we must turn. You see, a community that is centered on Jesus is a community that sees the world upside down, particularly in seeing that self-reliance is actually a vice and not a virtue, and that deep dependence is the true virtue and sign of wisdom and strength. 
But in, in addition to the Beatitudes of Jesus saying, blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry, Jesus drives his point home by giving us these lovingly uh, warning words of the woes in verses 24 through 26. Look with me there. Back in Luke 6, starting in verse 24, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Now notice, it's the, the blessed are the poor, the hungry, the sorrowful, and the hated, while those that Jesus lovingly warns, and he does lovingly warn them, it's not, this word woe is not like, look out, but it's this pleading with, it's, it's this desire, it's seeing someone going astray and begging them to return and repent. And so the, the rich, the full, the comfortable and admired, those are the ones that Jesus is lovingly warning. And he warns them because in their comfortable and carefree life, it's quite possible that they are blinded to and numb to the fact that they are in need of salvation and rescue and forgiveness. And friends, if, if we're just honest, if I'm honest with myself, if we're honest as a church family, it's possible that we run the risk of being the recipients of these woes. And we should ask ourselves that question. Are we more likely to hear the words of Jesus, blessed are you, or are we more likely to hear the words, woe to you? As we consider the way in which we live our lives, and the way in which we prioritize things, the way in which we conduct ourselves and order our allegiances, what would Jesus say to us? And the reason I say this, hear, hear me very clearly, the reason I say this is because there is an upside down nature to how having more than what we need leaves us needing more than what we have. I'm gonna say that again because I really liked how that came out. There's an upside down nature to how having more than what we need leaves us needing more than what we have. Because we were designed and created to find our, our satisfaction and contentment and identity not in the things of this world, but beyond this world. And when we misorder those things, we find this kind of perpetual discontentment when we build our lives upon things that were never meant to be the foundation of our lives. This is why Jesus lovingly warns the rich that the consolation of their wealth will fade. It's why he warns the satiated that those who never deny themselves will find themselves at one point hungry for more. It's why he warns those who laugh from their comfort and their insulated lives that they will weep if they build their lives upon anything other than Jesus and his kingdom. And we, by and large, as a community, I, I know this is not true of all of us, but, but we live fairly comfortable lives. Is it possible that we may be the recipients of Jesus' woes more so than his words of blessing? We, we live comfortable lives. And, and what this does, and not only is this a danger because it creates a, a, a kind of a counterfeit contentment, but it also produces this kind of um, corrupting obliviousness to the problems of those around us. Not only does it create this, this sense of like, we have our lives put together, but it also keeps us from knowing, welcoming, inviting, and learning from the blessed poor in our midst. We wall ourselves off from a wonderful resource of people who know what it means and know what it's like to suffer and to grieve. And sadly though, we tend to dismiss, devalue, or even just distance ourselves from those who we would see as weak, oppressed, and poor. 
And in so doing, we, we cut ourselves off from a great resource of learning what it means to, to live a life of mercy, of justice, of, of sympathy and empathy, and frankly, to know what it means to live in the ways of Jesus. Brian Stevenson, uh, he is a follower of Jesus, and he is the director of the Equal Justice Initiative. He also wrote a book called Just Mercy, which actually turned into, uh, it's a movie, it's in theaters now, starring Michael B. Jordan. Um, but, but in his book, Just Mercy, uh, Stevenson talks about, I think, this very principle of what I think it means to, that Jesus says, blessed are the poor. He says, there is a strength and power even in understanding brokenness because embracing our brokenness creates a need and desire for mercy and perhaps a corresponding need to show mercy. When you experience mercy, you learn things that, you, that are hard to learn otherwise. I, I think that's very much why Jesus said, blessed are the poor. So friends, a community that is centered on Jesus, it sees the world upside down. Not just because the poor and oppressed need us, so to speak, but because we need the poor and oppressed. We need to have an understanding of what it means to value the, the true nature of what the kingdom of Jesus is breaking in to reveal to us. And that starts with us, with us believing and living as though there is no gradation in terms of worth and value and significance when it comes to the rich and the poor, when it comes to black and white, to old and young, to to. Democrat or Republican, we have to live with a functional understanding there's no gradation in terms of worth in these secondary categories. Which is why being and remaining a homogenous church on, on any standard or any metric, any level, whether, whether it's uh, ethnic or socioeconomic or political, whatever it may be, it's, it serves as an impediment to our own discipleship it serves as an impediment to our witness and to our faithfulness and fruitfulness in being the church of Jesus Christ where any and all people through Christ can be welcomed and made family. We are walling ourselves off from being a more beautiful expression of the kingdom of Jesus here on earth as it is in heaven when we remain a homogenous community. We believe the gospel compels us to be a people of, of reconciliation to God and to one another centered upon Jesus in such a way that our church begins to reflect the diversity of our community. And we've talked about this in various ways. We, we don't reflect our, our immediate parish. And we've been trying to take steps towards this on a journey as, as a church, but we have a long way to go. And while so much can be, can be said about this, I'm sure the question you're even thinking, like, how, what does it even look like for us to be a people centered on Jesus, who, who order our allegiances rightly, who, who seek to value the, the, the things of the kingdom in the way that you're speaking? How do we do this? And like I said, many things could be said, but I want to just offer us one practice that we can engage in as a people of Jesus centered upon him and his kingdom. And that's this, that a, that a community centered on Jesus feels the pains of others, feels the pains of others. And this is perhaps one of the most difficult things for us to do in our culture, in our world, not, not because we're, we're kind of inept at showing empathy, that may be part of it. I think it has more to do with the fact that we live in such an individualistic culture where we tend to kind of see our problems as our problems, your problems as yours, and, and, and until your problems begin to become my problems, I don't need to really concern myself with them. We, we tend to ignore or explain away, actually even worse, the problems and pains of others because we tend to be more removed from them. 
We struggle to see, feel, and understand people in different contexts because their problems are so other, because of the uh, relational, cultural, or socioeconomic, or, or proximate distance between us. As Pastor Brian Loritz once said, that, that it is dist- or proximity breeds empathy, distance breeds suspicion. And this is actually how Luke describes the rich in verse 24. In fact, it's actually a common theme of how the rich are described throughout Luke's gospel. It's not just that they have possessions. That's, it's not inherently wrong to have things. But the rich are those, as one commentator put it, the rich are those with significant resources at their disposal, yet who fail to consider the plight of others. That's really what's at the heart of the the problem of the rich. Not that they have things, but that they have built things around themselves as a way to insulate themselves from the pains of other people. Wealth and comfort and power, yes, produce a sense of uh, a dangerous self-reliance that kind of uh, keeps us from seeing our need for Jesus, but it also produces a corrosive obliviousness, as I mentioned, to the pains and problems of others. And the the disconcerting thing is that oftentimes in our attempts to help people in their pain is when our insulated obliviousness is made manifest. When we hear someone's pain and we begin our response with a sentence that starts with the word just. Like when, when we respond to the materially poor with just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and work harder when we respond to the clinically depressed with just focus on all the good things in your life, when we respond to a young black man and saying just just comply with what the officer says, when we respond to an abused woman and say just forgive and be patient, or to an immigrant and say if if you would just come here legally we wouldn't have this problem, or or when you respond to someone in a crisis of faith and say "Just, just let go and let God, just give it to God. All of those things I just said, there's a semblance of truth in all of those responses. But what they reveal is that in that moment, I have failed to truly understand your situation. I have failed to lean in and feel your pain. And I've assumed that from my vantage point, I know what's best. And I am offering you the solution, so why don't you just take it? When we just people like that, we show how little we know of their situation, how little we actually feel their pain, and frankly, how little we are being like Jesus in that moment. Again, this is why Jesus calls the poor blessed. They know how to feel the pains of others because they have felt pain. They know how to comfort others because they have been comforted. They know how to weep with those who weep because they have wept more tears than many of us. They know how to suffer with because they have suffered. Friends, I'm a firm believer that that we we cannot fully know what it means to follow Jesus if we have not experienced and endured pain and suffering and hardship. It's why there is a danger to the comfortable life that we might call the blessed life, but actually keeps us from the blessing that Jesus displays for us in the Beatitudes. I think one of the most effective ways to make someone feel invisible is to disregard, dismiss, or, or, or make sense, or make light of their pain. It's the quickest way to make someone feel invisible. And the quickest way to make someone feel visible is to feel their pain, is to, is to help them feel felt, is to recognize that what they're going through, while you may not fully understand it and experience it, you're leaning in to try to do so. And in so doing, 
I believe we reflect more and more of the nature of our Messiah, who entered our world to become our pain with us. When that becomes the model of which we conduct our lives, I believe the local church of all communities is designed and primed well to be this kind of community because at its center is a king who entered into our pain and suffered with us, amen? When that is the center of our faith, we can be a people who know how to empathize and feel the pain of others. It's why the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse three, one of the most influential verses in my life this year, the author says this to the church, remember those who are in prison as though in prison yourself with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Friends, this posture of feeling the pains of others is vital if we are to be a community centered on Jesus. It's not just about how do we grow in empathy and emotional intelligence, it's how do we reflect the nature of our Messiah who entered our pain with us and for us. And to do so, we must be a people who keep first things first in ordering our allegiances rightly where Jesus is king and everything else is put in its place after that. It happens when we become a people who see the world upside down, who guard ourselves from the dangers of self-reliance, of consumption and consumerism, to where we numb ourselves from our need for Jesus and from the pains of others. And it comes from our ability to feel the pains of others by emulating our Lord who became our pains for us. But if we, if we can't do this, if we don't do this, if we won't do this, then it's quite possible we may find ourselves drifting away from what it means to be a Jesus community laid out for us in Luke's gospel. And I think we need to fight to return to being a gathered community and a scattered people who know what it's like to order our loves rightly in such a way that no label or category can justify our distance from people or our disdain for people. When we center our lives upon Jesus in such a way where he is king, no amount of categories can lead us to distancing ourselves or creating disdain for anyone in our lives. And the reason why is because at the center of our faith is Jesus, the one who saw us in our poverty and became poor to richly bless us through his grace of salvation to us from the cross. The reason why this is true of us and should be true of us is because Jesus is the one who saw us in our despair and suffered with us so that he might comfort us with great joy. At the center of our faith is Jesus, the one who saw us in our oppression and shared in it with us so that he might justify us fully. At the center of our faith is Jesus, the one who was, saw us as rejected, unwelcomed, and was rejected himself so that we might be brought in to the kingdom of God and called dearly beloved daughters and sons forever. Amen? When that's our truth, when that's our story, when that's our narrative, when that is what tells us who we are and whose we are, it transforms the way we live out this community that we call church. May God empower us by his Spirit to be a people centered on Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would, through the power of your spirit, Lord, fix our eyes, fix our hearts and our, our hands and everything about us, Lord, upon Jesus. 
that you would align our wills with yours, that we would seek to be a people who center our lives upon Jesus in such a way that we do rightly order our allegiances. And so, Lord, if there is anything that has supplanted Jesus in our hearts, would you remove it, Lord? Would you place it in its right category so that Jesus would occupy the throne of our heart all by himself? Lord, I ask that you would guard us and you would show us if we have possibly filled our lives, built our lives upon something that has led to a self-reliance showing that we have no need of you, that has insulated us from the, the needs and the pains of others. Would you remove those things, Lord, for our good? And would, would you equip us to be a people who are so acquainted with Jesus, the one who is the suffering servant, that we would be a people who are able to suffer with those in our midst? And Lord, may we through this be a church that truly is for the good of all peoples, reflecting the beauty of your kingdom, that we would see the fulfillment of what we prayed earlier on earth as it is in heaven. Would you do this, Lord, for our good and for your glory, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.